1: There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go, the 602 Club. You know it. (laughs) I was there more times
0: than I can remember. It's a funny old life, eh? Mm -hmm. Well, you've got your story for your newspaper. All's well that ends well.
1: It's not ended. Sir Francis left another clue at the bottom of the globe. Clue to what? 400 weight of gold, just lying at the bottom of
0: the sea. How's your thirst for adventure, Captain? Unquenchable, (gasps) Pintan. Welcome everyone to the 602 Club. I'm so excited to be back. Uh, it, it's fantastic to be here in the seat. We're only a few weeks away from, I would say, probably the biggest movie of the year. Uh, but I wanted to do something special tonight and, and visit something that it's been a while since I had had seen it. Uh, but I've always liked this movie and I really wanted to talk about it with somebody who has an appreciation, uh, not only for the character, but the film and the history of the character, uh, e- even more than I do. And, uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to have back to the show. It's been a long time, but, uh, Nick Anastasio, how is it going?
1: It's going good, Matt. Um, thanks for having me on. It's good to be back and, uh, especially on the 602 Club. I have a very special, uh, very special connection to that one. As you know, um, that's kind of the show that brought us together and, uh, Brought me into the network, um, got you and I to become friends, and then the tons of people that I've become friends with who are part of the network, who are hosts, people on the Babel conference. So um, the 602 Club means a lot to me, and, and uh, coming back for this particular movie we're going to talk about, um, that makes it a, a, an even better reason to come back.
0: Yeah, I love <laughs> I love the idea, that, you know, like the 602 club on on Star Trek Enterprise is a place where people would get together and and meet each other and hang out because it's a bar and the fact that that actually brought us together as friends and um inter- introduced us to a lot of other people together is is a really fantastic thing. It's one of the things I love so much about the show. I mean, the the amount of people that I've met just because of it and people like you or I think of like John Mills or so many of the listeners that I I talk to so frequently now. Um, um, that seem like, you know, just friends that um, I meet in a digital space. Uh, I love the 602 Club being that. And it's, it's, it's a joy to, to have you back as we're going to be talking about The Adventures of Tintin, um, and the first movie that they did in that series. It's still tentative of whether they'll ever do another one. Uh, Fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed. But this is uh, The Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn. Uh, But before we dive into that, just want to remind everybody, you can find all the shows we do here on the network on Trek FM over at iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. That is a great place to check out everything that we're doing. We have shows coming to you pretty much every single day of the week. And while you're over there, hit the uh, 602 Club up with a star rating and review. Um, I really wanted to say a huge thank you. He got one of the most unique reviews for the show. I love it. Um, it, it really made my day reading this one. Um, and so I want to say uh, a huge thank you to this reviewer. And the uh, reviewer comes from Gerund And they said Matthew rushing is basically the opposite taste in movies for me. He prefers things that are obtuse and ambitious over things that move and are fun. But I love getting aggravated while listening to rushing's deep reads and (laughs) against the grain criticisms. Good show. They gave us five stars and they said dig in. Um, I love it thank you so much the fact that I mean we have different tastes but you still love listening to the show is exactly why we do the show I mean that that really warmed my heart to to hear that that you can enjoy listening to somebody who may have a different opinion than you do um, and still get a lot out of it that's fantastic so
1: that is, yeah, is that that is one of the biggest compliments you can get especially in today's world someone saying <laughs> I disagree and I love you for it. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 awesome so thank you so much really appreciate
0: that um, you know it, the fact that you gave us a review again it helps other people find the show so uh, follow their lead go over to iTunes hit us up with a star rating review you can find us wherever you get your podcasts we're also on Twitter at Trekfm, Facebook at Facebook.com slash you can find us online at Trek.FM where if you're there you can check out all the shows that we do there's a contact section that you can go to, trek.fm contact. If you choose a show, you can choose the 602 Club, and that can send us an email. Um, I can share the email with whoever was on the show with me that week, and we can reply to you back to any questions you might have. Or, I mean, we've gotten some emails recently, people just having questions about um, things about the show or things they think we should do or that kind of stuff, which is awesome. So keep them coming. And, of course, you can find us on our Listeners Only Discussion group, and that is on Facebook. Now, if you're on Facebook, type Babel into the search field, and you'll find us um, because it's called the Babel Conference. And if you're on the website, just click Discussion on the menu bar, and that'll bring you right over, uh, and you'll be able to join the group and the conversation. So, uh, Nick, as we talked about, we're going to talk about... um, Tintin the adventures of Tintin the film but I wanted to ask you first um, there's kind of some interesting things this history of this character um, for the character itself I wanted to talk about it for you and then for the filmmakers because Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg both have a different coming to this character from each other which is I think fascinating but I wanted to ask you just a little bit just American audiences don't seem to be quite as familiar with the character. It might be somewhere in the back of your mind is something you may have seen. But what is the history just of this character as, as a comic series?
1: Oh, huge. Uh, I mean, uh, Tintin, definitely in Europe and in many, many other countries, um, in Africa and Asia, um, is really, honestly, as big as James Bond rolled together with... Indiana Jones and Superman. Uh, You know, you, you, you pretty much, you, you can find, I think, I know there was a time, I don't know if that's still true because I remember reading that years ago, but there was definitely a time not too long ago when Tintin was the most translated um, graphic series of graphic novels or comic books in the world. Um, If it's not anymore, I'm sure it's still in the top, you know, the top five or top 10 list. Um, and I, you, you can go on any of the major websites, even eBay, you know, um, and look at Tintin merchandise and you'll find, uh, t-shirts or books, any kind of, uh, of articles that have Tintin in Tintin logos and drawings in Arabic in Thai in Japanese. Uh, I have a t-shirt, um, that somebody had gotten me, I think in, uh, in the Netherlands or in Sweden, uh, Tintin t-shirt. So it's a it's a very it's a staple, um, definitely again, very iconic in European pop culture. But it's one of those um, European exports that has traveled uh, all around the world.
0: Well, and it's crazy to think that Hergé created Tintin back in 1929, and that's mm-hmm. the first time that you saw him uh, in a Belgium newspaper. Uh, and the fact that he has lasted. This long, I think, is pretty amazing. You know, um, in in a lot of the ways that, like you mentioned, uh, Superman, like we think of it, like nineteen thirties was the creation of Superman. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so you have these characters that are so iconic that live in the minds of people who read them, and and they continually go back and read. And obviously we haven't had a new Tintin comic in a very long time because Hergé died back in, in uh, 1983, unfortunately. Mm
1: -hmm. So,
0: but I mean, just amazing.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, one of the, one of the really interesting thing that Hergé used to do as well, uh, which there's probably other comic book creators who did that, but I I have not heard of any other um, who have done that. He would actually go back and he wouldn't just publish new adventures of Tintin. He would go back and redraw and republish the original ones to make them more contemporary to um, the times as the decades. So you're saying event. he's
0: the original George Lucas.
1: Well, you know, there's definitely a lineage there. Um, and and it's funny. I mean, and he, a little bit like like George, he would be very careful, very faithful to what he had done. So he wouldn't just completely... Change it. Um, he would just refine it, um, and this is where we again we we may see some some uh, some parallels. He would actually fix things that he he felt he had he had done right the first time. Um, he would also, you could say, upgrade it for the for the progress in publishing and printing. Uh, one very simple example: um, the very few, first few adventures were initially published um, in black and white, and he went back later. And redrew them in color um, and again he would refine his style he would fix things that he think that he thought he had gotten wrong because he was he was a uh, uh, one thing I mean every style has been has been the subject of, of books uh, he was very particular um, about the realism and accuracy of, uh, of some of his backgrounds the scenes and locations he would pick um, and that that's actually again that that has become the subject of a lot of um analysis and in and, and uh discussion the fact that he combined a very not photorealistic but realist um style with uh character design that was very cartoony and uh, same thing in his choice of colors uh once he started to draw in color very muted um pastel type colors but at the same time also very simple palette of colors that's very very stylized um, so he he would go back and refine that uh, over and over and and there are several first edition tintins de- depending on when when we're talking about there's some some books which he published first in the 30s and 40s which he then republished in the 50s and 60s it's
0: uh it's it's fascinating to me because um you know looking at this person of immense talent, one of the things that was interesting finding out about him is that he uh, didn't do a ton of traveling himself. Um, but the the reason that his books felt so real to people around the world is because he did his research. Uh, and so he would pour over research wherever he was going to have Tintin be so that it would feel authentic to the reader of that, area which i th- i thought was really fascinating like he he's not just drawing a comic and and just having a good time doing it like he he's paying attention to detail of the places that he is referencing or having tintin go which i think is one of the things that helped make him such a popular character all around the world because when somebody read an adventure where he went somewhere uh whether it was in Africa or Russia or any of these places people felt like they he oh he got the details right
1: mhm yeah he uh he was definitely he was definitely very much into like you said uh doing a ton of research and in, in that there are textbooks about that showing the references he would take, uh, from articles to uh, photographs, um, measurements, to make sure that he got the flavor of the place, the locations right, names, etc. There's also, you have to be, to to be, to to frame things in context of the objective. The one thing you you see, especially in the earlier books, um, he was definitely, I mean, he was a man of his time, and so he was colored he was, uh, um, you see the, the filter, the prism of the, the culture he lived in and the way that they yeah. saw, especially some of those exotic locations, you know, like Africa and even America. Uh, if you read Tintin in America, which is one of the, one of the early Tintin adventures, um, it, it's very, there's a lot of like really, really big cliches. Um, and, um, even later once, once he started to, to redraw those, um, I would I would say personally that I actually admire I think by then he was already aware that some some of these were stereotypes but he in redoing them he stuck to the original he that was the part of him who was kind of faithful to the source material and said well this is what I published and I'm not going to change it I'm not going to change the story this is what it was um and you see but it's actually interesting to see also over the the 30 35 or so years I think his last book was in 1976 I want to say or 77 um that he published uh, it's interesting to see actually how progressively you, you see him really evolving with the culture of the time.
0: Well, and and this is the interesting thing too. So, you know, Tintin had been adapted into feature films uh, and animated features uh, and for television series, but um, it was something that uh, he wasn't particularly happy with anything else that had really come out. And so Spielberg himself, um, while on tour for Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, was reading a review in a French magazine uh, about uh, the film. And they keep mentioning Tintin. And he doesn't know what that means. He's he, he said I, I only speak very little French, um and so, <laughs> uh it, I I keep thinking of maybe it just means it's a great movie or something, um but it turns out it's this this comic series, uh and he finds um some of the the works there by Hergé, kind of falls in love with it. Him and Kathy Kennedy actually schedule a meeting with Hergé in nineteen eighty three. Uh, while filming Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, and sadly, um, Hergé died that week. Um, but his widow uh, gives the rights to Spielberg because she, he thought, Hergé himself thought, that Spielberg was the only person who could do Tintin justice, which I think is really fascinating. And, you know, I, I want to ask you, as a huge fan of Tintin, how you feel about that idea? Because, you know, Spielberg has brought pretty amazing things to the screen, like Indiana Jones. Uh,
1: I mean, yeah, I I was, uh, my mind was blown when I first heard that story. And uh, um, it's funny because I actually got the chance to uh, speak with uh, Jason McGatlin, who was um, one of the producers on the film. He's he then when Kathy Kennedy took over Lucasfilm, he he came to work here, and he's now producing the Star Wars films. And it's in that context that I met him. And it's funny because I I, the first time we met, I I asked him if we could uh, if we could chat, if we could if I could schedule uh, some time to to talk in his office. And I'm sure he thought I I was going to pick his brain or try to about some Star Wars nerd thing. And and actually uh, when we met. I was like, okay, so first of all, right off the bat, I'd like to just say that all I want to do, if you don't mind, is geek out over Tintin, <laughs> um, because I know you produced that movie, and and I'm really dying to 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 talk about that with you. And I I think he thought that was funny, and that kind of you know got him into. He's like, then he was really happy to talk about Tintin for a while, and and he he told me that story. He said, you know, because we talked about about Indiana Jones, and uh, and he said, you know, the funny thing is Stephen had never heard of Tintin when he made Raiders. Um, and he was actually blown away by the number of people who would tell him, this is the best Tintin, non-Tintin Tintin movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, and that's what got him to to think, okay, now I'm curious, I got to check it out. And then he fell in love with it. Um, so I, I do think, you know, call it synchronicity. Um, I, I you, you know, I mean, I think that they, they don't, draw from the same well, because Tintin is part of that well. Tintin, if, if you're going to see anything beyond synchronicity, I think that where you can see that where the parallel comes from is that Tintin evolved over a long period of time, but Tintin started, originated at that time of these you know, that last gasp, that age where we, we are already in the modern age, we have airplanes that can fly around the world, we're, still, we're starting to think about rockets going to the moon and so on and so forth, but we're still, we're living the dusk age of, of romanticism and, and exoticism of faraway lands and unknowns and, and mysterious islands and so on and so forth. Um, and that's kind of the the in that twilight in that in in the intersection of those two worlds is that sweet spot where anything is possible technologically, but anything is also possible in terms of mystery and adventure, and that gives way to things like you know Treasure of the Sierra Madre and and all the the big um, adventure serials of the of the '30s, which inspired George, which then which then led to to Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones, but it also at the time. Inspired a contemporary of that time, Hergé, to create a character very much like Indy.
0: I, I was just thinking as you were saying that you know the idea of um, the that beautiful time period that this this series is set in, and Indy, Indy is set in, is why I also love, which we talked about it way a long time ago. Um, Sky Captain in the World Tomorrow, um, mm-hmm. you know, in that same vein, uh, and. In a lot of ways, uh, an even more romanticized version of that time period, which I thought was so cool. and so yeah, the, these things just fitting together, and I think it's 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 amazing and 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 one of the things that I also thought was interesting is that Spielberg wanted to make the film um live action, uh but he also knew that they were never going to be able to have a a a dog do what snowy can do. So he contacts Peter Jackson uh, because he loves the work that Weta did with Smeagol on The Lord of the Rings and asks him if they could see what it would look like to create, you know, um, this character. And uh, (laughs) Peter Jackson is a huge fan of Tintin since childhood, Mm -hmm. um, which is awesome. And I love that the. Uh, work that they send Spielberg uh, actually has Peter Jackson himself playing Tintin with the digital Snowy running around him and everything. That is just phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I remember at the time, um, I'm pretty sure this is something that I can share. A, a, a lot of companies were um, bidding to try to get work on Tintin. Um, and, uh, uh, because there was still the possibility it was, they were going back and forth live action or part live action with some CG. Um, and so if it was going to be live action characters with a CG snowy, there was a possibility for VFX houses to work on it. And I remember at the time, uh, we were sent, um, those clips to, to do our own snowy test. And um, I remember having to bring those those plates those those clips online, and I and I was looking at those those uh, those Haddock tests, and I'm like, that's that's Peter Jackson, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was awesome. <laughs> he <laughs> yeah. looks so good, like he could have played him. It would have been awesome. And you know that that's a total nerd fanboy thing for him to do. That's is oh, him yeah. saying, oh, oh heck yeah, I'm gonna be Haddock. <laughs>
0: Well, and he even had, you know, uh, the Weta Workshop make him the costume, um, yeah. which yeah. Is, is phenomenal. So I just, I love the fact that what you get is these two filmmakers who are coming at this from different angles, but are both very passionate about it in different ways. Um, and uh, what I loved was watching the extras and their passion and their thought process uh, and being fans from different from different places in their lives actually helped them making the movie because they collaborated quite heavily together. Even though Spielberg is the director, Jackson is heavily involved uh, as the producer, even being there with uh, Steven as he's directing via conference and everything. Um, So I I think that that, like you were saying, there's a synchronicity, but it almost feels like this... um, just wonderful felicity to have these two titans of um, fantasy genre films to come together to create something that is kind of the godfather of a lot of the things that we've, you know, grown to love, like Indiana Jones or Star Wars or, you know, like all of this kind of comes out of of everything that Hergé did starting all the way back in 1929.
1: Yeah, I think think, uh, one of the great things about Tintin – being so universal, you know, I want to say, um, Tintin is like soccer. Tintin is one of those few things. And there are, there aren't many that transcend almost all partisan lines. Um, and it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where the color, what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your religious or political beliefs are you can sit across the table and bring up Tintin and the person in front of you is gonna, you know, light up and say, yes, yes, Tintin. I remember Tintin. I love Tintin. And, uh, I mean, again, it's like soccer. You see, this is one of those few arenas where you can see countries that otherwise will will be at war that will get on the field and enjoy 90 minutes and leave everything else to the, to the side. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think in, in the in the arts, in this field, you get that collaboration you're talking about. You're, you get these two guys who share talent, but who have very different talent and I'm sure very different outlooks on life and so on and so forth. But then this common denominator creates a, 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 a universal language for them to be able to collaborate in a great synchronicity.
0: I wanted to ask you before we kind of moved on uh, for you, um, what was your history with Tintin? Because, you know, you're uh, originally from from France. And so what was your first experience with Tintin? And and what how uh, as a kid, what did you fall in love with?
1: Um, So my I came into it like many kids. You know, I I was born in the early 70s. Um, I got hand me down um, books from my sister. Um, I'm actually, it's funny. I I knew at the time that they were my sisters. I'm starting to wonder if they belong to somebody else in the family before, because my sister was born in the sixties and some of the books I went back on one of my trips home, um, not too long ago and, and actually brought them here, brought them back to the U S with me. And some of them are from the late forties and early fifties. Oh, wow. I wonder if they might've not belonged to somebody else in the family before they got passed on to her. But anyway, my, my parents gave me, you know, they were just there because every, every household, every family had the Tintin books, you know, and as you have kids and another kid, you just kind of pass them around. And so, um, read them from a very young age and, uh, um, probably because of how young I was, it was an even more impactful window into all these faraway lands for me as a little kid, you know, all of a sudden you could go anywhere in the world. Um, Tintin goes to Tibet, Tintin goes to Africa, Tintin goes to America, Tintin goes to China. Um, And again, you know, it's all, it's all latent as a, as a five, six, seven year old, you're not aware, but I think what draws you where he really hit that, Perfect chord is you have these really cartoony characters, which as a little kid, um, obviously are you gonna, are going to draw you in right away. They're funny. Um, they're very animated. Even you know the, his even though his he's got kind of a very geometric, very symmetrical layout in his uh, panels. Uh, there's a lot of uh, dynamic kinetic energy uh, as well, but at the same time. To go back to what we were talking about earlier, you have these very realistic, very accurate scenes, places, settings, which make you believe that you're going there, especially as a, as a little kid. So that was that was my my initial window um, and uh, the draw for me. And then, of course, after that, you know, you you kind of um, the books. It was on the on the end. Of the the original books publication but I think there was like a couple two or three books that I picked up in bookstores as they first come out they first came out the last two or three Um, and so then you get this thing where you you feel like now it's part of you're not just inheriting that from a sibling or someone in your family but now it's it's you're you're taking ownership of it Um, and so then then you you enjoy the fact that it's, it's something that you feel like you own as well.
0: Yeah, this is something it, it, for me, you know, I found because of the film and because of who was involved, you know, with it being Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg putting this together. Um and so glad that I did. One of the things <laughs> I have on my wish list at Amazon hint hint anybody out there uh is the book uh set uh that they have on Amazon, all of them. Um because I'd love to have them and I'd love to read them all, uh, because it's such a part of you know comic history now, and it would just be so much fun uh, to to go back and and read those. Because and I just I really enjoyed what we got as the story here, and that's one of the interesting things for me. Um, you know, being somebody who doesn't know the books, bringing this story together, it was really interesting because this is actually kind of a an amalgamation of a few different. Tintin stories all put together to make what they felt like was the best uh, story for the first film that they would do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that is it's something we can talk about more when we when we get into the specifics of the film. Maybe we can we can move to that part of the of the uh, the, the show now. But I think it's it's something struggling for the to find the right way to describe it. I think that it's it's the it's the biggest challenge that the film faces, um, and I, I don't want to say it's shortcoming because it's not. They did a great job uh, considering the challenge that it was, but it's the one thing that, I don't want to say hurts it, but it's an impossible challenge almost, and and they did not only the best, but they went beyond the best that they could do. Um, the The... I think the reason why the the movie is the way it is and the mosaic it is of stories, you know, they took three books and, and grafted them into one story is because I think, I think that that was them intelligently realizing that the lack of familiarity with Tintin in the U S made it so that they had to not just launch you into Tintin adventure, but roll in, A ton of exposition about the world the main character and so on and so then they look for both the best adventure adventures plural and the elements from another story that would allow them to do that um and again they considering how challenging it is and that most movies that try to do something like that even just two books usually fail miserably they did a great job um if if i had to ding the movie in some ways it would be for the the places where and again it's inevitable it's not really its own fault but where i i, I could you can kind of tell that it stretches a little bit the fabric of the story by how much it squeezes in and kind of stitches together from from the others and if again they really didn't have a choice because they had to try to make the movie as ready possible for us audiences as they could um, if if you're gonna go the road not traveled um, way, I would say you know I wish in a, in an ideal world where it had been a universal thing everywhere, they might have been able to kind of jump in a little more like ironically Spielberg did with with Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you've never seen this character before, but you kind of are just catapulted into his world, and it's a combination of how good the story is and and relying on conventions for the audience to say, oh, I get it. I know where I am. I know who this guy is. I know what's going on. Um, so, but yeah, you, you can definitely see these uh, these these stitches at every level in terms of the writing and the way the movie is shot and, and, and edited. Um, it's uh, especially when you know, of course, the Tintin stories, um, you, you can see that they carefully try to to select the right pieces.
0: It's interesting because, you know, for them bringing the story together for me as somebody who hasn't read those stories, I did feel more like it had kind of that Indiana Jones vibe in the sense that they kind of drop you in and, you know, you immediately I mean, the story just begins very quickly. You know, like you're what, 30 seconds into the movie Mm -hmm. and the mystery begins Mm -hmm. um, and they just never really there's really not a moment for a breath the rest of the movie, which is not a problem whatsoever. I'm not I'm not digging the movie in that way at all. So it, it, it to me it did kind of feel like that they had picked the the right books to put together, um, mm-hmm. so that like you said, it felt like it, when it, they stitched it together, it worked pretty well, um, in in the sense that like it, especially if you'd never read the books. And, and if you'd read them, you'd know where they came from. But it, it, uh, it sounds like it didn't feel too jarring for you.
1: No, no, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think exactly like you said, if, if you're going to set yourself those parameters and say, okay, what we have to do is this, then within those parameters, they did, they acquitted themselves of the job, I think, as, as best as anyone could and probably better than most other filmmakers would have. Um, the, the only thing and I feel this is something that's just me speculating. No, one, no one's told me that. But I feel like the only thing that I feel is missing from, from the film is a cold open. I, I, I feel like especially if I put myself in the shoe of someone who, who doesn't know Tintin, doesn't know the world or whatever, what I want is the beginning of Raiders what I want is I want to come in or the beginning of a James Bond movie. I want to come in and I want to see Tintin on the tail end of one of his previous adventures. I want to see him get that photograph or find that Mm, artifact or something, which informs me in the space of five, six, seven, eight minutes about a ton of things before you then take a break, help, you know, give me a minute to catch my breath and then launch into our adventure. Um, And I, I don't, my speculation would be that that Spielberg chose to not do this because otherwise he would have probably gotten a reverse comparison of when he yeah. did Raiders, which is <laughs> everyone saying, "Oh, well, of course you're going to do that because that's you're doing Indiana Jones, basically." Um, but uh, which which is kind of ironic, and and I can see if that's the case why he would say, "Well, crap, that would be the thing to do," but I I I'm locked. I can't do it. Um, and I think they tried. The way that they, again, if I read into this correctly, because that's just m- m- my interpretation, I felt like they were trying to do that a little bit. It's kind of a cheat with the opening titles.
0: Yes, because, yes. I was going to mention that. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah, because the the animation in the opening titles actually is a bunch of little vignettes in a very stylized, almost like 1950s, 60s style of snippets of, of, of other Tintin adventures. Um, and so if you, if you follow during the credits and you catch on that, it's not just kind of something to, to distract you, it starts to inform you a little bit. So I, it feels like this is kind of what they were trying to say, okay, well, we can't really do a cold open, but we'll, we'll, we'll merge it with the credits. Yeah.
0: I, I was really paying attention to the credits as I rewatched the film and I, I absolutely kind of adored the way that they're done and they're beautiful, uh, credits but mm-hmm. the fact that they were kind of giving you a hint of as to what his life is like as a character mm-hmm. um and so that as you go into the story and like i said you know kind of 30 seconds in you're already into the ne- this mystery you have an idea that this is kind of who tintin is he he's somebody who tries to solve mysteries and mm-hmm. uh, i thought that was really fun and, and i think you know part of the the Success of weaving it together, you know, they got some really good people uh, to to bring things together. I mean, at this point, when they're doing this, um, you've got they asked Stephen Moffat, uh, and um, he was brought on because uh, the first person they invited to to write the film, Edgar Wright, wasn't available because he was doing something else. So he says, you know, you should you should uh, use Stephen Moffat. So Stephen Moffat uh, begins the script writing process, and then has to leave because he becomes the executive producer of Doctor Who. And so to finish it off, they bring back Wright, who's available at that point, who's working with Joe Cornish, and they finish up the script. And, like, the people that they had, I think, on there, and I'm specifically thinking about the way Moffat is kind of good with uh, fantastical stories – because of his work with Doctor Who, I felt like they did a great... All three of them did a great job of making the the story and then kind of the backstory we get with, you know, uh, uh, Haddock and Rackham and all of these people. Like, that, that part felt really kind of organic to the story, but I feel like that's because somebody like Stephen Moffat, who, you know, is very familiar with doing that on Doctor Who makes that work so well
1: yeah absolutely i mean again you can see like i was saying you know in the writing and then you, you'll see that uh follow through in the execution of the film you see a lot of care and a lot of talent considering also the source material you're dealing with and how dense it is um there's a ton of stuff tons of details in every every Tintin story so to adapt one. Um, And to do it right as a film would be a challenge in itself to then say, let's do three (laughs) and let's somehow make them feel like one and still make them feel like a real RG Tintin adventure. And on top of that, also make it so that it has the right elements for an origin story so that people who don't know, don't feel like they they're left out. It's a it's a huge it's a huge uphill challenge you give yourself um, at square one. And so, yeah, you you really see, I think you cannot accidentally stumble into succeeding at this movie. You have to do it deliberately um, and and really, really plan it. One
0: of the things that was interesting, because as we were talking about the uh, actually what brought Peter Jackson onto the film, which was the idea of maybe doing Zoe as CGI and doing the rest live action. They decide to do motion capture. And um, the, the way that they film this movie is so unique. In, in setting up this, what they call the volume, which is just a room that is, is not all that large, um, but it is surrounded by cameras that are capturing everything on the suits. And then they have all these wireframe sets and props that the actors are actually able to pick up and use and have, um, you know, contact with. And and they film the whole movie this way. And, like, when you're watching it, it looks kind of insane. But it's so... The way they translate that into the animation is phenomenal. I feel like... I can't imagine this honestly is live action because they would have had to like put, you know, prosthetics on people to give them that Hergé look. But this was just—I felt like the the perfect way to make the movie so that it felt realistic in some ways, but it also felt like the source material all at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, I I totally agree. I, I think they used a lot of the tools that they had developed at the time for uh, Avatar, which was shot um, over there uh, in New Zealand uh, in that volume at Weta. And um, uh, this is a technology that Cameron and Peter Jackson and George um, had really pushed for very hard. I remember this was, we're talking about like the height of the clone wars and i remember george actually um, when we were cutting telling us a lot about um him meeting with these other directors and in pushing to get that technology um, out and looking for projects um george was looking for ways to have the clone wars use the same technology he oh wow um, for yeah for for quite a while he was pushing um for a volume to be created um at ILM, which would allow Dave and the episodic directors to come in and actually shoot physically oh,
0: goodness. That with actor
1: awesome. the episodes, um, but then that would have been translated directly into into a, a digital set. Um, and um, and yeah, I think you know again, of course, and that's a total personal bias, which which I, I you know I'm self aware of. Having grown up with the books themselves, my instinct is always going to be. I want to see this in 2D land um, in a way that emulates Hergé's style, um, a little bit like the opening credits, which I think are also a a way to give a nod to the original style of the, of the books. Um, But like I was saying for, for the the choice uh, that they made in terms of the stories and the grafting of stories, if you say, okay, well, we, we, we make the choice that we're we're going to go 3D with this in, in any kind of way, you know, Anything other than just a two D and anim- old school animation, they made the right choice. I think live action would have been wrong for the reasons you talked about. Um, live actions com- live, live action com- combined with CG would have been wrong um, because if you shot real backgrounds, uh, you would have you would have needed to light the characters with completely photorealistic char- lighting. And with these styles, characters, I think it would have looked just bizarre and freakish. Um, And in this case, you get backgrounds that are photorealistic, but they're still CG. And again, even though they look photorealistic, the brain in the back of your mind, you'll know that they're not real. And so that helps you dial down when you're when you put your characters in there. The fact that the characters are so stylized is not going to make them look freaky, because because you know somewhere in the back of your mind you know that the whole thing is fake. Um, so they they I think they did they they did the right cho- they made the right choice.
0: Well, I I love too you know that as they're filming uh, Jackson was on the set for the first week uh, and then he had to go back to New Zealand because he's wor- working on King Kong, um, but he he was there every day that they were filming on the video conference uh, with Spielberg, and they would talk back and forth and, and, and really working in tandem with each other to make sure that they got their vision out there. And I thought that was, like, the... It's totally a Spielberg movie, but to be a director and allow somebody else to help you craft that vision, I think is there's a lot of humility for Spielberg in that, um, it, it, and, in and, and relying on, on Jackson to help give him pointers or tips or allow him to have an opinion like that. I think, uh, just, I was really, uh, blown away by watching the extras and, and watching these two men work together so well. And they're both master filmmakers. I mean, th- they've made incredible movies. Um, but the fact that they could kind of it almost seemed like they were able to put those egos aside and just geek out together, making this, I thought that was just it was kind of really cool to watch,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that uh again, this is kind of the where we draw back on the universal appeal of of uh, of the character and the fact that it's it's this thing that is so big. Uh, and the love that it generates is so big that it then transcends all these other things in terms of ego. And then, like you said, it's just two fans who, who are geeking out and saying, "Hey, let's do this." um and i I really loved um, the fact the way that that Jackson took over directing the 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 flashback sequences mm-hmm. with with uh, with uh, Haddock's ancestor, I think is a great it's a great choice. And again, you see there, uh, the reflection that goes into the choices they make and the talent because they're not just randomly saying, Hey, you know, you direct the first half of the movie and I'll direct the second half or, you know, here's, here's direct part of my sequence or whatever. It's um, Peter Jackson has a very, very specific style of directing. And if you look at the, the narrative, these scenes lend themselves very much to that style because all of a sudden now we're we're in the past and we're telling a fantastic tale. And so now that right away you're in this world where you want, you almost want to have these big Peter Jackson camera moves, these sweeping vistas, because we're telling, we're informing the audience again, visually, this isn't just something that's happening like the rest of the story, this is now a tale being told, a legend, something epic, right? And so you bring in Peter Jackson and his Lord of the Rings big camera moves, and all of a sudden you have these this amazing pirate action, you know, sequence and yeah. sweeping <laughs> cameras and the masts falling, and you know, and just like Lord of the Rings, you're like, holy crap, what the heck is happening? And you love every second of it. Um, so, but 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 you see how they're completely, like you said, geeking out. I think. And enjoying themselves but there's still that that um calculation of making like thinking about making the right choices in the right places
0: i wanted to ask you what you thought of spielberg's kind of sensibilities for the movie and how they ended up working for you especially somebody who is such a big fan
1: uh you know it's about as perfect as as it can be i mean i think Again, it's it's the synergy, right? This magical synergy. Raiders Indiana Jones is, you could say, subconsciously inspired by things like Tintin. Indirectly, you know, the, you, I'm sure you could establish a, a, a chain of events that kind of leads Tintin to inspire Indiana Jones, and then in turn, the sensitivities that inform Spielberg because he's still at a formative st- stage of his career when he does Indiana Jones, and so. I, Films like Indiana Jones and E.T. and Jaws are are the films that really built Spielberg's sense of aesthetic and storytelling as, as a filmmaker, right? So it's funny that you have this kind of full circle. Something like Tintin leads over a course of 30, 40 years to inspire something like Indiana Jones. And then the sense of aesthetic and storytelling that comes from Indiana Jones serves another 30 plus years later to inform the best possible type of storytelling for an animated Tintin story or a visual Tintin film. I mean, the, the, the scene, um, to stick with the Spielberg part of of the direction, the scene, uh, when he and Haddock fly through the storm, um, and the plane lands, crash lands in the desert, um, and the whole beat with the, the propeller at the head and, you know, one solving one crisis leads to another crisis. I mean, this is straight out of Indiana Jones, and and it works. It's it's like a glove that fits another glove. It works perfectly for Tintin and Haddock.
0: Yeah, I was I was thinking of the the scene, uh, the chase scene that they have, and how Indiana Jones that is, um, and even um, the the part where uh, Tintin. Ends up off the bike with only the handlebars and sliding down the uh, laundry line and everything. Like, it's so Spielberg. It's so Indiana Jones ish. Mm -hmm. Like, but it, it fits perfectly with everything that you would expect, you know, uh, after reading up a little bit on Tintin, like that kind of adventure and, and craziness, you know, and if um, Hergé had had been able to do something in 3D, you get the feeling like this would be the kind of thing he would have loved to have had access to being able to do um, with the character. And, and, and it just, I think Spielberg and Jackson together, they kind of have the perfect Aesthetic and sentimental sensibilities when working with this kind of property, that yep. that make this movie just a, a joy to watch from beginning in, to the end. Um, so, I, I yeah, I really, this was a movie where I felt like all of the things that sometimes we can ding Spielberg for really come out to play perfectly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think for me, when uh... When Steven Spielberg allows himself to be a kid again is when he's going to create pure magic. Um, Sometimes I feel like when Steven Spielberg tries too hard to be a grown-up and to be self-aware of himself as an adult and give his material gravitas and make sure that it can be something that's, I think, as perceived by him, taken seriously, it's not that he's not creating then good stuff, but he loses a little bit touch with that that pure part of of what I perceive to be his his creative heart, um, and and then it's not going to be as genuine. It, it might still be great. It might still be amazing, beautifully shot, beautifully directed, beautifully edited, but it's not going to be as genuine as when Spielberg allows himself to view the project that he's working on through the prism of that 12 year old, um, 12 year old's eyes. And I, I feel like even though, again, ironically, he didn't know Tintin when he was 12 years old, you see that connection, that direct or indirect connection between that and the things that did inform him in the sense that you feel like everything that inspires Spielberg and that he loves, all of a sudden comes to life again. And you feel like you are watching Spielberg in 1976 or 1980, 1981, just having fun and expressing himself, really expressing his voice.
0: No, I, I do. I completely agree with you. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask is we had talked about it a little bit before uh, them melding the, the different plots together. I wanted to ask you specifically about the plot and how you felt like it worked here for the movie as an introduction for basically really American audiences, but even around the world, Uh, and for somebody who's a fan, how this uh, plot of Tintin finding this ship and it connecting with Haddock, and of course, uh, in the end, Red Rackham and the pirates and all that stuff, how you felt like all this works together.
1: I I think it works great. I mean, I think that it's... I can look at it from, from both angles um it's um there are things that i don't regret but as a fan of the books um that i wish were different because um and the 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 crab golden pincers is is the the story that actually introduces haddock and it has this element um the the scene with the boat where he first meets haddock who's been kind of held captive by his own crew and all that part and they they escape and they they fly this plane to um over the ocean to this desert all that is from that book that book in itself is much more straightforward um tentin is trying to to bust a a a cartel of of drug dealers who drug smuggle opium um into into europe um and i do like if I look at it straight up from the angle of the books, I like the fact that it's a great way to introduce the characters with a simple story so that you don't have the story overpower the characters and the setups. Um, But um, it would also at the stakes that we're talking about for the movie, it probably wouldn't be enough of a story for um, the first Tintin animated movie. I mean nothing because like it's, it, going
0: to a kid's movie and having it deal with a you know
1: a drug cartel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and then and then, you know, the two other books, which are um Red Rackham and The Secret of the Unicorn, um, the things that I'm missing there, these I mean, these came along much further into the life of the Tintin books. And so at that point, everyone already knows the the principal actors. The settings, so you're able to jump into the adventure, and you're able to then you have room for a lot more epic scenery. I mean, there's this whole thing where um, they have this awesome submarine which looks like a shark, and Tintin goes underwater in the sub, and there's this whole thing where he actually finds the unicorn um, underwater. There's there's a lot more that's really big and epic, and in the opportunity for these these great um, set pieces but that's the opposite issue of of the the, the first one because you already know everyone. It's these big set pieces, but there's not a a lot of character development or character introduction. You already know everyone. And I think that if you had just focused on that, you might've been able to make a much bigger, much more epic even movie, but at the same time, people would have probably been left scratching their heads saying, I am confused. I don't really know who I'm, who these people are. And so, so again, like I, I can look at it and say, Oh man, I would just wish I just wish, but needing to do to stitch things together to have the sense of epic and adventure, but at the same time, let you know who, who are the principal players and what's going on, what's at stake. They did a phenomenal job. They, they just, you know, made the right choices. What
0: did you end up thinking about uh the casting for some of the main characters like Tintin and Haddock and uh Saccharin and of course Thompson and Thompson?
1: Yeah, I um my two favorites I have to say, I think everyone was great. Um my two favorites are um, Daniel Craig and Andy Circus. Um it's uh and again I'm just speculating, but listening to Craig um do Sakarin, it. it You can, to me, you can almost palpably hear him having fun. Yeah. It it feels completely (laughs) like one of those, like one of those cases where A, an actor who gets to play a villain, which is oftentimes they'll say a lot more fun because you can go over the top. B, you tell him, and guess what? You can do it from a booth where you can just, just go crazy. You know, You, you don't have to, you don't have to, to be careful of how the camera's looking at you. And it's your voice that's going to drive. Right. And, and I feel like you can really, it, it's, it's so different. And it, it comes out as this great over the top 10, 10 villain. Um, and any circus, I'm one of those, you know, any circus tends to polarize people. People either love him or they, they, they can't stand him. I'm not sure why, um, but um, I, I think he's, I think he's phenomenal. Um, and uh, so pretty much everything I see him in, whether it's himself, where he's doing a digital performance. I think he's, he's great, and and he nailed Haddock. I mean, Haddock is within a universe where the characters are all cartoony in their design and, again, in the way they're drawn and the, the, the some of the, the kinetic energy and poses and so on. Haddock is the cartoon within a cartoony universe. I mean, he's the one who, even when the scene, what's happening, the story beat is, is kind of more grounded, he's going to bring the comic relief at a, at a moment of tension or otherwise, you know, fear. Um And so as a little kid, I don't know if, I mean, Haddock. I don't know if I would say he was my favorite. I think Tintin was my favorite, but I loved Haddock because he was the, he was the one that always made me laugh. Right. And, um, and I, I thought that circus really nailed the voice. Um, if I had to imagine a voice for Haddock, it would be that voice um, in French. And, uh and the uh, the mannerisms, everything was just great. Yeah,
0: nothing like a uh, French Scotsman. So,
1: yeah, um. <laughs> I mean, I did, I did, uh, um, and it's funny. I, I only, I've, I've been meaning to do it for a while, but I only got around to it. I think it was last year. Um, I finally watched the movie in French, um, which was great. <laughs> yeah, I had a great time.
0: I, I have to say, you know, I feel like the casting was just perfect uh, Jamie Bell is is Tintin is wonderful he has such a vitality to him you know he mm-hmm. has that kind of um ageless timeless quality to him you know as he ages he still feels young and so that's perfect for Tintin um you know I love Andy Serkis I think he's a genius uh and what he's done for film with motion capture and making that um something that I think should be respected and is just another way of giving uh, a performance Um, needs to be recognized. And so um, really, really like the way he plays Haddock and uh, Haddock is like you said, he's just such a fun character to watch visually. Um, And part of that is because Andy circus knows how to use his body in every single possible way to make something bigger than life uh, on screen. Mm -hmm. And so I love Mm -hmm. that. And, Yeah, I I think you're right on target with with Daniel Craig. He is such an interesting choice to be in a a kids movie, Um, but he's so good as this villain. And I think you're absolutely right. He he tends. I feel like he's just enjoying hamming it up for one of the few times in his career. Like he doesn't really get to do that all that much. So, (laughs) and then um, yeah, I mean Nick Frost and Simon Pegg as Thompson and Thompson. I, I don't know what could be better casting than those right? two. I
1: mean, yeah, it's, they're, 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 you know, it's like the, the Cheech and Chong kind of of their time, yeah. you know, they're like, <laughs> like they're, you, you, they, one does not go without the other. Right. So just like Thompson and Thompson.
0: One of the, one of the things that I, one of the few things that I kind of uh, felt like thematically that I really enjoyed was this, um, was the whole idea of Haddock, uh, you know, having this curse, right? Uh, This Haddock curse. Mm -hmm. And and it allows him to kind of blame everything that goes wrong on this curse instead of really kind of working hard. But at the same time, he's kind of just living up to everybody's expectations, what they have of him. And so Mm -hmm. he just kind of wallows in defeat. And I loved the way in which his relationship with Tintin kind of slowly starts to bring him out of that. And I thought that was, like, that's a cool thing uh, about this movie. You have this character who's really, f- like, with Haddock. He's very flawed, and, um, I mean, he's an alcoholic, um, and all these kind of things, not something you generally get in a kid's movie, but the the kind of the slow redemption of this character through his relationship with somebody who doesn't know him from Adam and doesn't see that he has to be that way and kind of challenges him to be better. I thought was really cool to have in the movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think especially if you if you think about it in context of you want to have this be an origin story, and which then means you want to do more and you want to keep telling these characters' story. Um, I think it's a great way to set it up because in in the universe of Tintin, once they meet, Tintin and Haddock are inseparable. Yeah, Uh, they they are. They are. They are literally inseparable. And and not only that, but Haddock, he has his own character arc um, and improves over time in the books. But he remains very flawed. You know, he's he's prone to be very opinionated, you know, to, to have a temper and so on and so forth. But when it comes to Tintin, he won't hesitate whatever if it's if there's a place where he won't go he'll go if he knows that tintin's in danger if uh, there's a thing he wouldn't do he'll do it without hesitating if he knows that it'll help tintin, et cetera et cetera and i think that what you're what you do by by doing what you were describing is you lay down the ground for why this guy once they've gone through what they go through in the first adventure would look at tintin and go okay well that's that's the guy who basically I owe having gotten my life back and my my past everything having redeemed myself. Um, So you set them up, you set them up to be the perfect partners for the next adventure. Yeah,
0: no, I agree with you. And I I just love, you know, when they finally get to that whole, he draws out of, he comes, it seems to come out of nowhere, but it's because of his relationship with Tintin where he, he remembers that old haddock proverb of if you hit a wall, you push through it. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what he ends up doing with his, his life in general is kind of pushing through some of his, you know, um, darker proclivities, you know, for, for alcohol and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that's a, that is kind of a neat thing for, you know, to, if if you're a parent and, and you're showing this kid uh, to your kids, I think that's one of those cool things that, you know, you can talk about, you know, that whole process of of learning to be a better person, and that that really comes through relationship, you know, with with each other. So, um, mm-hmm. I think that's really neat. The, the last thing I wanted to talk to you uh, before we rate this is Williams soundtrack here. Um, I honestly think this is one that people don't even know Williams did for the most part, because a lot of people may not have seen this movie, but I think it's really underrated.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, the best way I can talk about uh the soundtrack is uh I remember I have a friend a close friend of mine who's a a huge fan of uh early Spielberg era. Um and in particular Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders, Temple of Doom, um Last Crusade. And he loves everything about that, you know, nineteen eighty one through nineteen eighty nine period including John Williams and um I, I remember him um telling me that he had gone to see Tintin i think with some family member not knowing <clears throat> i think he knew spielberg had directed it but not knowing anything about it and 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 i remember him texting me uh, like crazy when he walked out saying oh my god i you know and the soundtrack, I felt like yeah. it was like all the best of Indiana Jones. I was listening, you know, it really sold me on that that energy um, and and these moments that I love and this kind of, you know, jinks adventure. Um, and I think Williams captures it perfectly. I mean, you you do hear, this is Williams, you know, this is later, later um, older John Williams and he's more subdued than he was, you know, at that time but I think he does a great job of, uh, of capturing, um, the kind of, uh, yeah, the, the hijinks adventure, uh, these, you know, also a little bit of these, um, colorful, exotic themes that you had, especially in old serials, when you would go to, um, another faraway country. Um, and he also, there's a little bit of, uh, uh, you hear sometimes kind of like uh, this very a little bit of a 1950s kind of these lighthearted adventure comedies, you know, with movies like with uh, stars like Cary Grant and so on. Um, that kind of had this sort of a uh, jazzy, lighthearted music that was made to it, the music was kind of telling you, yes, this is high energy and this there's adventure and action, but you're never supposed to really be tense or, or afraid. You're supposed to enjoy yourself. Um, and I think that that was a conscious choice here because they're dealing, you know, it's a, it's a challenge in the U.S. to to release an animated film, which is supposed to read like uh, legitimate drama or adventure and so on. But at the same time, if it's animated, everyone is going to assume I should be able to take my kids. Um, it doesn't matter how much you disclaim it. Um, it has to have the right elements so people don't feel like it's not a kids movie or else they're not going, they're not going to embrace an animated film and i think that there's a lot of elements again you can see the the deliberate choice including in the music to have these these tones that tell you okay yes it's high energy and it's intense but at the same time it's still lighthearted you're supposed to have fun um you're supposed to kind of stroll through it and and not be pushed or or you know terrified about what's going to happen turn around the corner
0: yeah i i mean I, I absolutely love when williams does jazz uh in his soundtrack it kind of uh reminded me a little bit of 101 dalmatians um it that disney soundtrack has uh, is all jazz which i love um, so it had some of that feel to it. Um, and then it just kind of feels like the amalgamation of a gumshoe noir detective adventure story. Uh, and you mm-hmm. just kind of threw all those things together and you get this, this super fun, wonderful, playful soundtrack that's just so enjoyable. And it like there's such life to it. And yeah, you can hear some of the things that Williams has kind of used in other places. But I don't feel like that detracts in any way. I actually feel like a lot of the times when you hear some of those motifs that he's used, um, like maybe in Indiana Jones or something like that, it actually accentuates the joy of this movie by kind of helping you just almost relive that. Um, so I, I feel like it's it's just something that's really well done and, and uh, it's one that I, I regularly listen to. Just because it has a playfulness, um, and it kind of puts you in a good mood listening to, um, so yeah, I, that's one of the things I really love about it.
1: Yeah, that's I think that that goes to the point I was making. You know, where it's it it always, it's intense at times and it's mysterious at times and it's a little spooky at times. But there's always something that makes you feel like it's lighthearted and it's it's uh, not to be taken too seriously in a good way. Where it tells yeah. you, you know, you're supposed to be. You're still, you're still here, no matter what's going to happen. You're gonna have fun. Um, and the, yeah, the opening, the opening theme, the main theme, has this very kind of uh, Michelle Legrand or, or Henry Mancini, you know, a little bit like the Pink, mm-hmm. Pan- Pink Panther kind of feel to it. Um, so there's like combinations of jazz, and then there's moments where, yeah, it definitely dips into into indie uh, territory. But I think, like you were saying, I don't think it, I never feel like it's derivative. Um, I feel like it's um, it's almost like Stranger Things, you know, where, where you, you, you watch Stranger Things and you know that it's inspired by this or inspired by that, but it feels appropriate and it feels like you said that this is motivated, it's the essence of um, that is captured to make you to evoke a feeling. And so here it feels like it's motivated and, and, and similarly, like it's, um, it's chosen deliberately to capture the essence of a moment, whether it's adventure or comedy and so on and so forth.
0: I I definitely yeah I definitely feel that it doesn't feel like it's copying it just feels like a wonderful homage to what you know him and Spielberg have done before which in in a lot of ways you know Tintin is an homage to everything that they have done which is so much fun because um it, it it is the spielberg movie that you know if your kids aren't old enough for indie yet you can show them this right and you you can enjoy the feelings that you have as a kid with indie um and then kind of ready them to enjoy indie when maybe they're a little bit older you know because it's not necessarily something you want to show to a 5 year old right um but mm-hmm. you'd be more comfortable with showing this to a 5 year old so uh <laughs> mm-hmm. it, In the end, uh, Nick, uh, gosh, if you were going to put a rating on um, the Adventures of Tintin, what do you think?
1: I, on a scale of one to ten, I would give it uh, uh, hovering between eight and eight and a half. I would give it. I think I'd give it an eight and a half. An eight and a half Thompson. That's Thompson with a P not Thomson. But... Oh,
0: yes. Uh, uh, perfect. Um <laughs> gosh. Um I think on I think on Letterboxd I have this at 4 out of 5 stars and I think that that's about an 8 out of 10 as a rating. And so I I yeah. think I'm just right there with you. This is, you know, this is 8 out of 10 Stolen Wallets. Um, nice. it's, it's, uh, it really is a, a joy of a movie. Um, I remember showing it to my wife and she really had a good time with it. Um, she is a huge animal person, so she thought Snowy was adorable. Um, you know, this, this is a fun movie. In fact, this is the first movie that had won a, uh, Golden Globe for best animated feature that was a non Pixar film at this point. Um, and so that lets you, I think, know that, this is quality stuff and I'm surprised more people didn't enjoy it and see it. But if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this episode, I highly encourage you to do so. Um, honestly, Nick, I, I just hope that uh, they'll go ahead and make another one of these because I really want to see Peter Jackson fully with the reins of direction in that next one. Cause that's their plan.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, the, the, uh... I had read uh, at the time, Peter Jackson had said that the the one that the next one he was going to do was uh, was uh, Temple of the Sun, which which makes total sense, because that that is it's one of the best intent adventures. It's a two parter as well. So they have definitely a lot of material to make it into a feature. Um, And and that's that's even more straight up, which is the irony keeps on building. If you read um, uh, those two those two books it really feels like an indiana jones story um complete with you know you you end up you start in europe and then you travel to the jungles of south america and you find the secret temple and um there's a lot of really great stuff and and to see what peter jackson would do with that it would be it would be i I keep every now and then i'll hear like a, a secret rumor and this and that but i i i don't think it's anything is happening right now and I, I grow a little worried that because now it's been so long it's been it's been I think six or seven years uh, since the film came out um, that just by sheer inertia, they're gonna kind of grow out of it uh, and they're all they're all really busy doing other stuff. you know Jason McGatlin is here producing the Star Wars movie. Spielberg is doing a ton of stuff, including soon a new Indiana Jones movie. Peter Jackson, I'm not sure the only the only kind of thing that sort of keeps my hope up is that I'm not hearing Peter Jackson working on anything else. So I tell myself, well, maybe, maybe there's hope.
0: Well, it just seems like a good movie for him to do anyway, because, um, you know, it doesn't take that long for them to film in the void. You know, it really doesn't. Um, I think the schedule that they had here was, it took like 30 days, you know, it's really quick. Um, and then you just get to, you know, sit back and enjoy the process of putting the rest of it together, uh, digitally, um, which, jackson loves doing anyway um uh, yeah so yeah if you're listening peter jackson which we hope you are um <laughs> you please get on that with the new tin movie but uh want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers through patreon uh, ken Tripp and davis grayson been supporting the show uh through patreon and the network for a very long time and and great guys uh and they know something that's really important uh track fm is a huge network and we have so much happening and there's no way and that we can make this happen on our own. And Patreon is the best way for you to be able to support the network and make sure that all the shows that we have keep coming to you each and every week. But, um, you know, you, as you'll notice, there's no ads. So you just get great content that you love listening to without having to listen to somebody stop and tell you about whatever, whatever, whatever. So that all happens because the listeners just like you. So go over to patreon.com. You can see how you can be part of our team. Honestly, every little bit helps uh, a month. And so uh, when there's many different ways that we love giving back to you, whether it's the Patreon round table that we do or uh, exclusive content, early access to content, all that kind of stuff. So again, it's patreon.com slash Now, Nick, um, I love having you here on the 602 Club. I love that this is the show that uh, brought us together and, and, and uh, gave us the opportunity to become friends. But uh, if anybody would like to talk to you about Tintin um, or anything else, um, where could people find you uh, to be able to do that?
1: Uh, the two best places are either on Facebook, where I, uh, uh, I'm not there too often, but I do go on Facebook regularly. And just you can look for my name, Nick Anastasio, or um, on the Babel Conference, which is uh, Trek FM's uh, private listener group. And, uh, I'm, uh, on the Babel conference quite often. So you can, uh, there's, uh, any number of threads, usually a lot of the 602 club ones that I'll join in and, and, and uh, pipe in with my, with my two, my two bit comments. So you can find me there.
0: Awesome, man. Uh, You can find me, uh, of course, uh, all over the place. I'm on Twitter, MattRushing02, and on Instagram under the same name. I'm here on the network with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine, the orb. We hope to be back very soon, so make sure that you're looking for those. Uh, episodes that Chris and I are, are crossing our fingers. We're actually going to get the opportunity to drop a new episode soon. So I hope you'll enjoy that. Uh, you could find me on the Nerd Party Network with, uh, as we talked about, uh, Nick and I, John Mills. We're doing aggressive negotiations, talking about all things Star Wars. We have a blast doing it. We just recently did uh, our episode on Rogue One. We did a commentary of that. Um, we asked the funny question on uh, maybe. Uh, are there theme parks in Star Wars? And if there are, what are they like? Um, so check that out. You can also find me doing Owlposts with Drea Kaufman as we talk about each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series. One by one, it's a blast. We're right in the middle of The Prisoner of Azkaban. And uh, then last but not least, I'm doing a show called Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney. And, and we just talk about film through the lens of faith. And you can find all of those on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts but thank y'all so much for joining us and y'all come back down here